We are tonight going to begin a several-week walk through the book of Ezra. So if you'll turn there to the first chapter now with me. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. So if you back up from the book of Psalms, you'll find the book of Ezra several pages prior. The book uh, is written by the priest of the same name, the priest whose name was Ezra. And we will begin reading in just a few moments in the first verse and the first chapter. Father, as we come to your word now, we do say to you, worthy is your name, worthy is the name of your son, Worthy is the name of your spirit. And so, God, by your spirit tonight, magnify your name and magnify your son from this, the book of Ezra, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been saying on Sunday mornings as we've looked at the book of Isaiah that during the time of the prophet Isaiah, the people of God were in the midst of a spiritual decline. This is the 700s B.C., And because of that decline, part of Isaiah's ministry was to prophesy against the sins of the people of Judah and even to announce to the people of Judah that they were going to be carried away into exile. Isaiah 39, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left. That was the prophecy of Isaiah about the people of Israel spoken to their king you will be carried away into exile but during Isaiah's lifetime there was a remarkable revival under a king named Hezekiah that seemed to have staved off the impending judgment at least for a season when Hezekiah died things went south again and then there was another period of renewal under the king Josiah became king when he was eight years old and led the people back to God. But again, when he died, the people went back to their old ways. So that eventually, in 605 B.C., about 100 years after Isaiah had prophesied these things, the bird of prey from the east indeed arrived in the person of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And in 605, uh, as we read in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar carried away a few of the upper crust of the people of God, uh, including Daniel and his friends. In 597, the Babylonians were back eight years later, carrying more people away, this time including Ezekiel, the prophet. And then in 586, finally Nebuchadnezzar finished the job when thousands more people were carried away. The temple was burned with fire. The furnishings and the utensils of the temple were carried away to Babylon and put in the house of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. The city walls of Jerusalem were broken down, and only the poorest of the land were left to tend the fields, we're told in Second Kings 25. Now let me just pause there and just say it to you, God is serious about sin. He is not afraid, as we see in the end of the Old Testament, to reduce our lives to rubble if that's what it takes to get our attention and to bring us to repentance. And so we should let the events that lead up to the book of Ezra tonight be a warning to us. In 586 B.C., the Jewish people lost everything so that perhaps some of them might gain their souls. Well, we saw on Sunday that God merely blows upon the rulers of this earth and they are carried away like stubble, Isaiah said. And so it was eventually with this king, Nebuchadnezzar, and the vast empire that he built. 
70 years after his ascension to the throne, 70 years after his conquering of Jerusalem and his becoming king, really, of the known world, this great empire was toppled by another great king named Cyrus, king of Persia. So the deportation to Babylon, 70 years pass, and now Cyrus, king of Persia, becomes leader of the known world. You may remember the story, perhaps from the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, threw a great party and had a great feast. And he and his wives and his friends and his concubines were drinking from the sacred cups that they had stolen from God's temple. And we read in the book of Daniel, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And then a hand appeared and wrote words on the wall which Daniel translated to Belshazzar, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And that very night, the city was broken into by the Persians, and Belshazzar was slain, and Babylon, the great empire, fell to Cyrus, king of Persia. It's now about 539 or 538 B.C. Sixty-six years have passed since those first captives, Daniel and his friends, were carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. 66 years. King Cyrus is now the great emperor of the known world, and the Persians are now the world superpower. But what of the Jews? What of God's people? All around them, the wheels of war and intrigue and world politics were churning and turning. But the Jews are still in captivity. They're still not home. They still have no temple where they can offer sacrifices for their sins. And perhaps... As they had done in Isaiah's day, perhaps the Jews during Cyrus's time began to wonder if God had maybe forgotten them, if their way was hidden from the Lord. But what is the answer when we begin to think that our way is hidden from the Lord? What did Isaiah say the answer was on Sunday morning? Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. In other words, God never forgets his people. He never lets his people down. He will restore his captive people in Babylon. And the book of Ezra, as we come to it tonight, records how in unexpected ways God did just that. This book records how God had not forgotten his people and how he did restore them from all of the trouble that they brought upon themselves. And so we'll read now beginning in chapter 1 and verse 1, all the way down to the end of the chapter. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. 
All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. It didn't take long once God had overthrown Babylon for him to restore his people, did it? It happened, we read in verse 1, in the very first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Notice also in verse 1 that these events, this return from Babylon to Jerusalem, were prophesied well in advance. This return to Jerusalem took place, verse 1, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah say? Well, in Jeremiah 29.10, he said this, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, speaking on God's behalf, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. When 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon, God says, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you, and I will bring you back to this place, to Jerusalem. And as we open the book of Ezra, now everything is going according to God's plan, isn't it? Just as Jeremiah had said, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Let me also point out that these events in Ezra chapter 1 also took place to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Isaiah. Listen to what we are told in the last few verses of Isaiah 44, written about 170 years before Ezra chapter 1 takes place. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. And here's the key. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And I will build up, or I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. And listen to this. 170 years before Ezra 1 takes place, God says, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Isn't that amazing? 170 years before Cyrus became king, Isaiah prophesies Jerusalem will be built, the cities of Judah will be inhabited, and it will be done by a man named Cyrus. He will come and he will declare that the temple and the city will be rebuilt. It's exactly what we find here in Ezra chapter 1. This is amazing. Not only does Isaiah prophesy that Jerusalem will be built and Judah will be inhabited, but he even gives the name of the king who will do so 170 years in advance. And that brings me really to the first of three themes that I want you to notice in Ezra chapter 1. Namely, the first is sovereignty. 
sovereignty. This chapter surely teaches us that God is sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning. That's what we learn when we compare Jeremiah 29.10 and Ezra 1. When the 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. That's what God said through Jeremiah, and 70 years later, it came true. Cyrus came to the throne in 539-538 B.C., and by the time he issued his decree in chapter 1, and the people made it home in chapter 2, and rebuilt the altar, and reinstituted the sacrifices, and laid the foundation for the temple in Ezra chapter 2, we are in the 70th year from their original deportation to Babylon. 536 B.C., the 70th year. How did it work out so perfectly? Because God is sovereign, right? And how could it be that Isaiah knew the name of the very king who would rebuild Jerusalem 170 plus years before he came to power? Because God is sovereign. God knew his name. And God controlled history so that Cyrus, king of Persia, would come to power exactly at the right time. And not only did God control the times and places of Cyrus's reign, but This passage also tells us that he controlled Cyrus's heart. Now, Isaiah, if we were to have read on in that passage that I read to you, Isaiah makes it clear that Cyrus was a pagan. Cyrus was not a believer in the Lord. In fact, God said to Cyrus at one point, I have given you a title of honor, though you do not know me. This king that writes these words in the first chapter of Ezra does not know the Lord. He is an unbeliever, and yet God is still able to work his will through Cyrus. God is still able to move Cyrus to do his will. That's what we find in verse 2 of Ezra chapter 1, isn't it? Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. God did it. It wasn't Cyrus's idea. It was God's idea. God put him on the throne, he says, and God gave him that command to build the temple. Solomon was right in Proverbs 21.1 when he said the king's heart is like channels of water in the Lord's hand. He turns it wherever he wishes. So it was with Cyrus. God is sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning. He controls the times and places of the great civilizations of the world, Babylon, Persia, and otherwise, And he turns even pagan kings' hearts wherever he wishes. God's sovereignty will be a theme, really, in the remainder of this book of Ezra. Cyrus, we will see, is not the only pagan king whose whose heart was like water in the hand of the Lord. We're going to see Darius, the son-in-law of Cyrus, arise and put down those who are persecuting God's people and foot the bill for the rebuilding of the temple that his father-in-law had decreed. And then we're going to see Darius's grandson, Artaxerxes, act in similar fashion, supporting God's people, both with his decrees and with his finances. But why did Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes show such kindness to God's people? Why did they support the rebuilding of the temple? Why were they sending God's people back to God's land? Why did they offer protection to them? Not because any of these kings were born again believers. Far from it. 
these three kings of Orient gave gifts to God's people because the king's heart is like water in the hand of the Lord, because God is sovereign. Now, this should be a great encouragement to us, should it not? That God is in control of all the events of the world around us, kings and emperors and nations. Perhaps the book of Ezra is especially helpful since we're in an election year. We can get all tied up in knots and think that it's the end of the world if the leaders that are elected aren't the ones that we think are godly. And of course, we should lament if they are not, and we should consider people's character as we vote. I'm not debating that. But this passage in this book teaches us all is not lost if we have an idolater as president. All is not lost at all. God is sovereign. The president's heart, like the king's heart, is like channels of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he wishes. God is going to do what is right and good and true in this nation. Whether that means that we need a cruel Nebuchadnezzar or a benevolent Cyrus. And we may need one or the other. God is sovereign. But even aside from God's sovereignty over kings, there's more encouragement in God's sovereignty here in Ezra 1. When Jeremiah's 70 years were completed, God's people went home. Not a minute too soon, not a minute too late. And so it will work out with you. God has appointed certain seasons and years, certain waiting periods in your life. And of course, unlike Jeremiah, you probably don't know how long they're going to last. But you can rest assured that God knows His plan for you will unfold exactly when it's supposed to, just according to his sovereignty, not a minute too soon, not a minute too late. When it is time for God, in other words, to change your financial situation, when it's time for God to give you a job or take away some physical suffering or provide you with a spouse or provide you with a child, when it's time for God to bring your child into his kingdom, when it's time for God to lift from you some earthly consequences of the sin you've committed, when it's time for God to bring you yourself to your heavenly home, his plan will unfold not a minute too soon and not a minute too late. Imagine these people of Judah in that year that Cyrus came to the throne. Some of them perhaps knew Jeremiah's prophecy and knew Isaiah's prophecy, and they believed and they anticipated what was about to happen. But surely the vast majority of them saw this new king and saw this new kingdom and probably it brought with it a great many fears just like political change always does. What are the new rules going to be? What are the new rulers going to be like? How are we going to be treated as a minority? Are we ever going to go home? Surely they thought these kinds of things but within a year they were packing their bags for the promised land. And oh, that we could only trust our God that our time will come as well. He will cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he will do it not a moment too soon and not a moment too late. That's the first thing to be noticed in Ezra 1, sovereignty. The second theme that's worth considering is the theme of provision. Provision. The God who is sovereign in Ezra chapter 1 wields his sovereignty to provide for his people. Did you notice that as we read along? It's not merely that God moved Cyrus's heart to make the Jews politically free so that they could go back in their own strength. In many ways, that wouldn't have been enough, would it? 
Because what would the Jews have done if they would have gone back to Jerusalem and had no supplies for building the temple and no working farms to feed themselves and no money to buy the things that they needed? But God did not leave the people without provision, did he? No, what we read is that God stirred Cyrus's heart not only to send them back, but to provide for them as well. Look at verses 3 and 4. Cyrus's decree continues here. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. In other words, if there's a Jew in your town who's going back to Jerusalem, you give him something. You give him a gift to go back to the temple with, back to his city with. And then verses 5 and 6, we find out what happened. Then the heads of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. God stirred Cyrus's heart, and Cyrus, Cyrus issued a decree to his people to provide for the Jewish people going back to their city, and Cyrus's people complied, all because God is sovereign, and as the sovereign God, he is the God of provision for his people. God wanted his people cared for. God wanted his temple rebuilt. God wanted his sacrifices restored. And he therefore supplied his people with exactly what they needed in verse 6. Do you see that? Silver and gold for the temple. Goods for the people's daily needs. Cattle for their farms and for the sacrifices that they would make. God took care of their needs. He took care of the building of the temple. He took care of the sacrifices that would have to be made. We see this same scene repeated in chapter 6. At that point, progress on the temple had been threatened by the people who lived around Judea and didn't want the Jews gaining strength. And so letters went back and forth to the various kings, and King Darius made this pronouncement in chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Listen again for God's provision. Darius says, Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Now that's wonderful in and of itself. Leave them alone. Let them build. Verse 8, Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river, and that without delay. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs for a burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil, as the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Do it in full. Do it immediately. Do it without fail. Why did Darius say those things? Because God said those things. God is the God of provision. The same thing happened, you might remember, when the Israelites went into the promised land the first time around. 
God moved the Egyptians, you remember, to give them articles of gold and silver and clothing, the very things that they would need for the construction of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the altar and the lampstand and so on. God gives his people what they need. Now be careful. All this talk about gold and silver and clothing is not health wealth and prosperity teaching hidden away in the book of Ezra. Let's remember that for 70 years in Babylonian captivity and for 430 years in Egypt, God's people didn't have all of this silver and gold and so on. And when they got them, they didn't name and claim these provisions and have God at their beck and call. No, God gave the provisions that he deemed necessary for them when he deemed them necessary. Note that well. Furthermore, Let's remember that these provisions were largely for God's work. Not just so the people could be wealthy. The silver, the gold, the clothing the people brought out of Egypt, and then the silver and gold and cattle and goods and valuables that they brought from Babylon were not meant for luxury or opulence, but for their necessary provisions and so that they would be able to build the tabernacle and then the temple. And so the principle to be garnered from God's provision of silver and gold to his people is not that God wants you to have a Mercedes. The principle is that if you are his child and if you are in genuine need, God will not leave you without provision. He may not give you what you want or what you think you need, but he will give you what he knows you need. David said, I have been young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his children begging bread. And the people in Ezra's day could have said the same. Furthermore, note well that when God moves his people's hearts, when God's people's hearts are stirred, as it were, to rebuild the house of the Lord, verse 5, when God's people's hearts are stirred to renew their commitments to him, to return to faithfulness, to advance his kingdom, he always has a Cyrus who can pay their bills. When the work is advancing the kingdom of God, God surely provides. And I want you to see this plainly. The people of God here in verses 3 through 6 were not called to be fundraisers. God took care of them through Cyrus. All they needed to worry about in this instance was obeying that stirring that was in their hearts. And if they obeyed that stirring that was in their hearts, the people around them put money into their coffers. And that's all that you and I need to worry about as well. We don't need to worry about where the money comes from or if the money comes We just need to obey the stirring of God that's in our hearts. Isn't that what Jesus said? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first to obey the stirring of God in your heart. Seek ye first to rebuild the temple, as it were. Seek ye first to restore your commitments to the Lord. Seek ye first to advance his gospel. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. That's exactly what we see here in the book of Ezra. God stirred the people's hearts. They did his work, and God provided for their needs. When God's people are in need and when God's work requires someone to pay the bills, God is a God of provision. And if you're not convinced of God's provision for you from the book of Ezra, be convinced by the cross. Never did God's people have a greater need than for the forgiveness of their sins, right? And never did God's provision have a higher cost than when it cost him the lifeblood of his own dear son. And yet, 
as God provided a ram in the thicket that day in exchange for the life of Isaac on Mount Moriah, so in our case it can be said, God will provide the lamb. And he did. So Paul teaches us to say that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God would provide for us in the most costly, unlikely way, surely he won't withhold anything else that we will ever have need of. God is the God of provision. Now, thirdly, as a theme in this first chapter of Ezra, and really as a theme in the whole book, we find restoration. Sovereignty, provision, and restoration. One of my seminary professors, Ken Easley, points out that restoration really is the primary theme of this entire book called Ezra. And we see that theme unfolding, especially here in the first chapter. God is restoring his people. God, through Cyrus, is restoring them to their own land. He is restoring the temple as well. That was the primary reason Cyrus sent them back to the land, right? He didn't send them back to the land just so that they could sit under their own vine and fig tree and have a good life. He sent them back to the land so that they could rebuild the temple. That's the point. God sent the Jews back to the land so that the Jews might build the temple. Verse 3, Whoever there is among you of all his people, may God, his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord. That's why they went back. And we see at the end of the chapter that not only did Cyrus restore their land and tell them to restore their temple, but Cyrus himself also restored the articles from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen so many decades before. Verse 7, also King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. It's quite amazing, isn't it? that this pagan king does all of this for the house and for the name and the people of God. He restores them. God restores them. Restoration, that's the primary theme in this first chapter of Ezra. All that the Jews had lost because of their sins, all that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from them, all that had been missing from their lives for, for 70 years is given back to them over the course of this book. As we read on past chapter 1, we find that not only was the land and the temple and the articles of the temple restored, but even more importantly, perhaps, the altar that sat within the temple was restored, was rebuilt. And the sacrifices that were given on that altar were restored as well. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But now the shedding of blood is restored and we'll also see as we read along that the various feasts of Israel were restored and that adherence to the moral law of Moses was restored by Ezra the priest as well. All of these things that they lost, all of these things that they had forfeited by their sin, God is giving back to them. Now all this restoration in Israel, all that God is giving back to them, again Dr. Easley points out, is paving the way for the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah's coming is prepared for by the very things that God is restoring in the book of Ezra. For instance, it was prophesied in Micah chapter 5 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. And of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah. 
But he could not have been born there had God not sent his chosen people back to Judah from Babylon. Or it was prophesied in Malachi 3 that the Messiah would, quote, suddenly come to his temple. And of course, Jesus did that as well, didn't he? On the eighth day after he was born, he suddenly came to the temple and Simeon and Anna saw him. In John chapter 2, near the beginning of his ministry, he suddenly came to the temple and cleared it of all the people that were selling animals and changing money. And then at the end of his ministry, Jesus suddenly came to the temple and were teaching the people in the temple courts. Malachi 3 was fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. But the Lord could never have suddenly come to his temple if God had not stirred Cyrus and stirred his people back in chapter 1 of the book of Ezra to rebuild the temple. Maybe these were some of the very facts that Jesus pointed out after his resurrection to those two weary travelers in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, when beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Maybe he said to them, that book of Ezra prepares the way for the coming of your Messiah. Without the book of Ezra, there is no Messiah. It's an amazing thing. All of these New Testament scenes that are so familiar to us, the manger in Bethlehem, the city of Jerusalem, the upper wall within Jerusalem's walls, the upper room, I should say, within Jerusalem's walls where Jesus ate his last supper, the cross outside of those city walls, the tomb cut into Jerusalem's rocks, all of these places and events that are part and parcel of everything that's familiar to us are impossible to conceive without the book of Ezra. So the restoration of the land, the temple, the altar, the sacrifices, the feasts, the law, all of these things are vital preparation for the Messiah's coming. But I want you to see also that the restoration that takes place in the book of Ezra is also a valuable picture of the Messiah's ministry. The restoration of God's captive people provides us with vital preparation for the Messiah's coming, but also a valuable picture of the Messiah's ministry. This book mirrors the life and the work of Jesus. Now allow me to explain how that is. The people of God in this book of Ezra returned. They rebuilt. They reformed. They recommitted. But it wasn't simply the land and the temple and the altar and the sacrifices and the law and the feast that were restored. Something else was restored in this book as well. Namely the hearts of the people. They didn't simply go back and do everything outwardly that needed to be done. This book is not simply about outward reforms. It's also about the restoration and revival of a people. And if you read the book as we will, you will see that that is true. Their very spirits were stirred, we're told in verse 5. Their spirits were stirred up by the Spirit of God. And that continues to be the case as this book unfolds. God is renewing spirits and hearts. We continue in this book to see the people of God stirred up to action. We see them rejoicing in the reforms that are being made. We see them responding to the word as it's preached by Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra. We see them repenting of their sins sincerely. This book is not merely about the restoration of a religious system. It's about the restoration of the people within that system. Revival is taking place in this book of Ezra. Now, 
keep in mind we're, we're heading down the track of this revival, this restoration of their hearts being a picture of Jesus' ministry. But just as an aside, let the fact that God was restoring not just their outward forms, but their hearts be a reminder to us. We ourselves have, by God's grace, over these last years, enacted a number of outward reforms. We've restored to our church life much that's biblical and precious, but we shouldn't be merely satisfied with amended constitutions, should we? We shouldn't merely be satisfied with more biblical ideas about membership or a better understanding of the facts of the gospel. All those things are good, but the restoration didn't stop with the outward forms in the book of Ezra. The people's spirits were stirred, chapter 1, verse 5. The people sang when the foundations of the temple were laid in chapter 3. They ate their first Passover meal in the land of Israel with joy, chapter 6. And in chapter 9, we read that they trembled at the word of the Lord as it came to them through Ezra the priest. And all these things need to be true of us as well. Not just that we get things right on the outside, but that our hearts are stirred and restored as well. And so to whatever extent your heart and mine have lost their zeal or their song or their joy or the trembling that we ought to feel at God's word, we need to pray that God would restore our hearts as well. As important as it was that God restored his law and his land and his temples and his, his temple and his sacrifices, it's equally and really more important to notice that he restored his people. He restored their hearts. Their very spirits were refreshed and their souls turned back to God. And as I said, this writing of what they had ruined by their sin, this return from captivity, this restoration of the people is a picture of the work of Jesus. Because didn't Jesus come for the same reason? Didn't Jesus come to restore people, to refresh spirits, to forgive sins, to cleanse hearts, to right all the things that we've wronged by our sins, to set free the oppressed and to put at liberty the captives? Isn't this what Jesus came to do? To lead his people to a heavenly Jerusalem? In other words, what was happening in the days of Ezra on a very minor scale among a few thousand Jewish people in a relatively small pocket of the Middle East is happening actually on a global scale all the time everywhere the gospel is preached. People are coming back to God. People are coming back to where they belong. People are coming into the land of promise all the time through the ministry of Jesus. Just as God brought the Jews back to where they belong back to where they were before they went into exile from the promised land, to the land of Canaan, into the temple, offering the sacrifices and rejoicing in God's goodness. Just as God brought them back to what they lost by their sin, so in the gospel God brings people back to where they belong, doesn't he? He brings us back to what we as a human race lost because of our sin, back to where we were before we were exiled from the Garden of Eden back into fellowship with God, back into the heavenly Jerusalem, back rejoicing in God's goodness, world without end. That's what Jesus is doing. Restoration. That's the theme of the book of Ezra, but really it's the theme of the whole Bible. Certainly the theme of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could not Jesus echo King Cyrus's words in verse 2 and a hundredfold more? Could not Jesus say... The Lord, 
the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem and in Cincinnati and in Brazil and in Ethiopia and in Turkey and in New Mexico and in Japan and on and on and on the list could go. The Lord has appointed me to build him a house. That's what Jesus is doing. Wherever the gospel is preached, God is stirring in the hearts of the people as he did in the days of Ezra to return to where we belong, to return to the Lord. Therefore, as the Jews, by the stirring of God's Spirit so long ago, arose and went to Jerusalem, let us heed the stirring of that same Spirit and let us arise and go to Jesus.